0: Daddy. Thank you for listening. Thank you Thank for you listening to the outstanding Ohioan show. Thank you for the outstanding
1: Ohioan show hosted by my daddy. Hosted, hosted by, by my, my daddy. daddy.
0: Thank you for tuning in to the outstanding Ohioan show. This is episode sixty-four, and today I've got the special pleasure to talk to Paul Stutzman from Holmes County, Ohio, and he is an adventurer and author, and you're gonna understand in the conversation as we unpack it why he has those two things and learn about his life in general. So Paul, welcome to the show. Well, good to be with you today. Yeah, thank you so much for agreeing to be on. Uh, In the show notes, we will have reference to Paul's website and the books that he's written, and you're going to hear a little bit of the story behind those things uh, because they are great books. Uh, But Paul, getting into your background a little bit, uh, can you talk about where in Ohio, where you grew up, and where you still reside?
2: Yeah, I live in uh, a little town called Berlin, which is in the heart of Amish country. Uh, we have forty thousand Amish people around here. My little town, Berlin, uh, we've probably got five, six hundred residents here, but uh, we're up to around five million tourists that are coming through here. And uh, the way I understand it, we're the top
1: uh, tourist destination in Ohio right now yeah. and so and especially this time of the year with the leaves turning uh, we just have
2: traffic everywhere but I was born and raised in this, in this uh, area I was born Amish and uh, when I was just a young boy my parents left the Amish uh, faith for uh, what, what was called conservative Mennonite it wasn't much of a jump but uh, they went from horse and buggies to a car and from no electricity to electricity and so we had some more, a few more conveniences than what the would have.
0: Yeah, we. I had the pleasure in one of the previous episodes to interview Gail, Gail, Galen Lehman from Lehman's Hardware. Oh yeah, right. Yeah, that that was a great conversation, and, and yeah. I'll and I'll put that in the show notes as well. Uh, can you can you talk a little bit more about about your family background, your parents, and and your siblings, and what it was like for you growing up in that environment? Yeah, well, growing up,
2: uh, I had four sisters, had no brothers, uh, but I had, uh, 50, I think 54 cousins, first cousins, and they all lived within probably 10 miles, and nine uncles and aunts. And, uh, so we were raised uh, in a strict, uh, church environment, conservative Mennonites, like I said, a car, uh, electricity, but no radio, no TV, uh, and so I fell in love with books. And so every two weeks the book, my bill would come to a, a neighboring town, and I'd walk over there about a mile, and I'd get books, and i just read books. And as kids, we'd play a lot of games. Uh, we weren't allowed to have cards. Um, the church considered that sinful. So we'd take our little uh, brown grocery bags and cut them up and make our own cards and our own games. And I'd go to school. I went to first grade. Uh, I couldn't even talk English. I talked Pennsylvania Dutch. Uh, of course, learned the language. But then as I grew older in grade school, I'd hear all these kids talk about these shows they'd watch on TV. And I'm thinking, oh my goodness, I am missing out on life. <laughs> in the meanwhile, I'm at home reading books and I'm out in the woods uh, damming up creeks, climbing trees. I'm just out walking around. <laughs> it took me a number of years. But uh, after I grew up a little bit, I realized I was the one that was fortunate that I didn't have the TV and the radio bombarding me all day, and that I was out in nature. And I think that contributed
0: to me uh, loving to be out in nature. Uh, the way I was raised. Mm-hmm. No, oh, absolutely. Uh, that, that's an interesting thing, and I, and I think you touch on that a little bit in your books about about what you felt like was an advantage growing up in that environment. In the in the, in the kids that you see growing up today in that environment. Uh, an, another book that I've. That I know you contributed to that I've read is one of the Serena Miller books, uh, where she talked a lot about the Amish childhood. Can you? Oh, the growing up, raising Amish kids, is more than happy. Yeah, can you can you talk a little bit about the, the differences you've seen in in the the, the, the English kids versus the, the Amish kids, or the or the the similar faith of the Amish? Well, it's there's probably respect with people respect for elders,
2: uh, like the Amish kids. Uh, that we, and when I was growing up, most of my Amish friends were raised on farms, and so they all had chores to do. So they get up early, do the chores. So they had responsibilities, and uh, and so it's a work ethic, and also respect, and a lot of a lot of family together. That's still that's still the Amish community is. They just do a lot of things together as families, and uh, growing up. To me, man, I had I had a two parent home. My mom and dad were married seventy years, and uh, I was my my sisters and I were together this week on on a vacation together, and we're, we're talking about our parents. And I said I can actually only remember twice in those uh, years of growing up with them that I heard Dad upset at Mom about some something. And growing up, I just we assumed everybody had that kind of upbringing, but the truth is that's not the case. And so I have been very blessed in that regard. Having uh, Christian parents that took me to church, taught me respect for God, um, community, family, and uh, that's sort of where the Amish kids are too. Now, that is unfortunately changing a little bit in the Amish community in that uh, a lot of the Amish people now, um, uh, it's kind of the hierarchy churches is, is the, the, the bishop is atop the and they pass some rules. And, uh, several years ago they allowed the, the phone for construction people. It's kind of interesting. They thought, you know, construction people they need phones. But what happened? What they didn't realize is with the iPhone, now the kids have uh, have internet and have access to all those things. And so it's kind of it's changing attitudes a little bit. But it's still it's still a a great lifestyle. But uh, some of the things are it's like
0: any other community or any other group of people. Uh, It's just some of those issues they have to face. Right, right. So. So, you, you, you go through your life living with your family. As you transition to adulthood, what, what was your path professionally and with your own family? When I was in high school,
2: uh, and in, in my tradition, uh, the Amish kids would go through eight, eight grades of school, and then they'd go to school a half a day, one day, a half a day a week, they'd go to a school until they were 16, and then they could quit and do whatever. Um, my church allowed the kids to go to two years of high school until uh, they're 16, and then they were, they were expected to quit and do carpenter work or plumbing or some kind of construction job, which I did for the three summers in high school. I did some carpenter work, and uh, I just did not like it at all, and I had other interests. And uh, so uh, when I was – so I went to my, my – sisters all went to two years of high school quit after my second year of high school in the morning of my junior year i got out of bed and my dad said what are you doing up i said i'm going to school he said no you're not i said actually i am and i defied my dad when i'm jumping the bus <laughs> and so <laughs> i actually finished high school first one in my family first one in my church to do that uh, and uh, it was sort of unheard of but it opened by mine to a lot of uh, avenues. I like medicine. Uh, uh, so after after high school, in, in our church, uh, Amish Mennonite, uh, they're, they're non and therefore uh, going into the military was 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 not allowed. And so this is. And I grew up just at the, the tail end of the Vietnam uh, War. Okay. When they had a lot of some of the people. I do this. They had a lottery, and so they had a lottery to see who would get uh, uh, drafted. My number came up, 335, which the draft board said you'll never get called at that number. And I said, well, uh, I would like to volunteer. And so I volunteered to work at a hospital for two years and absolutely loved it. I mean, just loved meeting people and hearing stories. Um, and I'd have, I'd have men coming uh, in there that were in World War II, and some Vietnam veterans come in there. And it just gave me a, a, a great respect. For these men and women who went to went to the military and protected their country, which I was would not have been allowed to do, and since then have have changed my opinion on that too. Uh, but it was just those stories, and this is back when. I'm working in the hospital, and and it's unheard of today, but the patients were still allowed to smoke in their rooms, and uh, sometimes they did ask me to go down to the gift shop and buy a pack of cigarettes. I'd bring them back up, and they'd be gasping and wheezing, and they'd always say, don't ever do this. Don't ever do this. And just those are things that you know you remember. And and I saw there were the results of it, and determined I will never do that. But that was my upbringing then. And after my two, I stayed a couple of years at the hospital, and then um, I met a girl. And actually, I graduated with Mary, and uh, during the four years of high school, I don't think I ever talked to her until the summer after we graduated. A friend of mine said, "You know what." Um, I, I need to set you up with this girl. And so they, and she did, and, and that, was, that was Mary. We dated a couple of years and got married. Now, she was, Mary would have been what we consider a mainstream Mennonite girl who was allowed to have TV and radio and, and uh, all that other things that uh, we were not allowed to. I was not allowed to go to movies, fairs, games, nothing. And again, thought I was deprived. But then when I started dating Mary and uh, we got married and I could have TV and I could do all these other things... I did them, um, but I realized what's the big deal? I guess, <laughs> not that. So just I wasn't missing out on anything, and so we were married 32 years, three children, and uh, in uh, August of uh, August 20th of 2004, uh, or actually 2002 was when my wife was diagnosed with breast cancer, and uh, it was already stage four, and uh, the doctors said that. Uh, we can treat it, but it's too late to do too much more. So, at that surgery and the uh, chemo and radiation, it's quite a journey. And, uh, she lived four more years, but a lot, a lot of uh, hair loss and sickness, and pain, um, and then she passed away uh, September the seventh of two thousand six. And then meanwhile, I had been in the I had been in the restaurant business for twenty some years as a restaurant manager. Uh, the last 20 were at a place called Dutch Valley Restaurant in Sugar Creek. It's a big Amish uh, family-style restaurant, sure. 150 employees. So that was, that was where I, was my, my last job that I had was the Dutch Valley
0: Restaurant Management job. Okay. So as your wife's going through this, and my condolences on that, that's that's an awful thing that you had to go through. What What were some things that you were thinking about doing with your life i know you referenced that you had held off going on a trip and maybe you can elaborate that on because you were trying to you, you were trying to get your financial situation squared away and then after she passed how did you decide to do the appalachian trail trip
2: we had uh, three children uh had a house so we had house payments car payments and then then the kids would as they graduated from high school, they went to college. And so we hit college debt. And so we just, our, our, our goal originally was to, to work and get the kids through college, you know, pay off all our debts. And then, um, in my mind, by the upper 50s, low 60s, we'd both retire and we'd do just uh, mission work, ministry work, community work, that type of thing. And in, uh, in May of 2006, my wife was at the uh, Cannon at the Hospital, and uh, I walked in that room carrying the last house payment. I said, honey, we're out of debt, completely out of debt. And she looked at me and said, wow, that's great. Uh, that was May of 2006. Several months later, she passed away, and I realized how you know, we, had, we had worked so hard to, for this someday. And realize that I sh- we should have done, and we did. We were youth leaders. We did things, but I tell people it's so important to enjoy the journey and not always have this goal destination out front there, because that one could never
0: happen. And so we need to enjoy the, the journey, right? And that—that's a, a great piece of advice. And yeah, I, I like how how you really presented that. Uh, so, so this this tragic event happens. How did you get this itch to do your to decide on your Appalachian Trail hike? I think it probably originally would go back to when I was a young kid,
2: and uh, like I said, uh, there's no radio, and no TV. I had four sisters, and so a lot of times I just go out by myself. and I'd walk in the woods. I just walked the woods. I daydream, I think, and I realized it was just it's an adventure, and uh, and I love to I love to hike and what I would do at the restaurant business in October was our busy month, and uh, I made mean, it extremely busy. I just worked all day, and uh, so the first week of November, I'd take off, and I'd go out, and I'd uh, hike uh, of the Grand Canyon, or Zion Canyon, and I'd just get my backpack, and I'd just hike down in the canyon, and it was so and so peaceful, and uh, that was And so I thought, well, you know, just, just if this is this healing in two days, imagine what would happen if I hiked like five months straight. And uh, so I came home and uh, I worked a year because uh, I was in grief support. And, and they in grief support, they'll tell you, don't do anything drastic, like you know, selling your property or quitting your job or a lot of a lot of especially guys, you know, they they are we're fixers. And so sometimes the best way to fix pain of losing a spouse is to go out and get remarried right away generally it's a mistake because you're what you're doing is you're just kind of replacing your spouse rather than taking time and, and falling in love again with somebody else hmm. um, so anyway i just uh, waited a year i waited a year a little, about a year and a half and this i just never could get the idea of this trail and I'd, I'd read i'd read every Appalachian trail book i could find and what i what would really impress me about these books that i read was not so much the geography and and, uh, this, that, but was what it did to people. Uh, And and some of them, it was hard to express what it actually did, the change that came over them. And I thought, you know what, Uh, I wonder, I just wonder what that would be like. And then I realized, Paul, you you can do it. You're out of debt, you've you've paid off all your debts. And then the flip side was, but you've got a great job, you're making more money than you ever made in your life. that doesn't make any sense. And, uh, and so I, I sort of grappled with that for a long time until I realized one day I'm at the age where I read a picture, in the paper. And uh, I realized a lot of people that are dying or passing away are younger than I was. And I thought, you know what, if, if you really want to do this, you actually can. Um, you know, we, we, we hear people say, well, I can't do that because I don't have a choice. And I realized we do we do, we do have a choice. You know, we can choose anything, and uh, we can choose to make bad choices. And so I thought, you know what, I can. I can actually quit this job. But it was the hardest decision I've ever made was to walk away from a really high-paying job. Hmm. So I decided to do it, and I went over to my dad's house, and I said my dad was 80. I think it was 85 or something at the time. He's still working full-time. That's what my dad did. He just worked. He hmm. worked in the business all his life, and then he worked at, at a factory. And um, they just thought he didn't fish, he didn't hunt, he worked. And um, he said, Paul, he said, are you sure? That's the right thing to do. And I said, Dad, you know what? I've prayed about it. I'm in a position where I can do it, and uh, therefore I will do it. And so fast forward a couple of years later, um, my dad was, I think he was 88 at the time, maybe about 89, and uh, I was at his house, and he said, Paul, he said, I've decided to retire. And I said, Dad, are you sure that's the right thing to do? At 88 years old, a couple <laughs> of weeks later, he came back
1: and said it wasn't. <laughs> so,
2: and ironically, my, my dad passed away at age 91 on a Saturday. And uh, one week later, on the 14th of Mother's Day, my mom passed away. Oh, wow. And uh, the doctor said it was pretty much a broken
0: heart, 70 years of marriage. So, um, I'm a blessed man. Right, right. So, so, so you get in your head to do this. What, what was your process to get ready and how did, how did you, how did you plan it out and how did you decide to do it by yourself? Well, I had
2: done enough research that I kind of knew a little bit what was involved. Although a lot of people plan this for like a year in advance, some, some of them even try their own food and research, um, equipment i i planned that i retired planned this within two months and uh, but what i did was i went to an outfitting store and there's a young man working there who had just done a through hike on Appalachian trail hmm. and uh, he was my resource and if anybody wants to do this my advice would be go somewhere to somebody who has actually done it hmm. and uh and, and listen to them and then another thing i learned from my dad was always buy quality you know don't go cheap going to hike that far, get good shoes, get a good backpack, get fitted. That was important. And so this young man, he, he outfitted me. And uh, it's winter. I, leave, I left March the, the 31st. It was my first day on the trail. And I decided to do this, I think, by January. Well, it's winter in Ohio, so I could I could get in shape. And I decided, well, I'm going by myself, and therefore I won't slow anybody down. And again, any hiker uh, doing a big uh, section hike like this, long hike, uh, if you go with another person or you, you, can, you can split the load, you go lighter. But if you're dependent on another person, then you hike as far as that person can go. And so my theory was, you know, what if I can only hike five miles or 10 miles? Nobody's, you know, I'm not going to slide anybody down. And so, uh, I, I uh, wasn't, I wasn't in shape. I really wasn't when I left. And, uh, I, I met people. The first, My first hiking partner was actually a marathon runner and had done 70-some marathons. And the second day on the trail, I met my second um, hiking partner who I had with for 500 miles. He was a marathon speed walker, and those <laughs> became my like two hiking partners. But the neat thing was that as they, when they were young boys, they were allowed to be in Boy Scouts, and they, they knew a lot about camping and tying bear bags and knots. Well, uh, growing up conservative Mennonite, I was not allowed to in Boy Scouts, and so I didn't know a whole lot about it, so I decided I'd stick with these guys and uh, learn from them, and so it was brutal, but I stayed with them, but I think in 20 days,
0: you touched on that in the book uh, can you talk about the role that prayer played and, and just th- that dream that you had about completing it can you talk about how that kept you going uh, like I th- I wrote that book 10 years ago I'm not sure what you're referring to the prayer about completing it well it, it just you, it, if I remember right you engaged in prayer daily Oh, yes. many times a day and then you had this vision of not quitting and completing can you just what well, what was the personal yeah, feeling for that the,
2: yeah the, the first night in my in my uh in my camp i'm, I'm camped at a place called horse gap I, i'd hike like eight or nine miles and uh it's raining oh my goodness it rained the first week rain still it's me it was absolutely miserable if i hadn't quit my job i'd have gone back to work uh but that first night in my this trail. Which to me, if you're a son, when my dad passed away, I'm his son. I was an heir to what he had. It wasn't that much, but as sons of God, we we're an heir to a, a vast future, vast fortune in my mind. And so, as I'm walking through this trail now, although the federal government owns it, I just in my mind, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm an heir. I, this is my land. This is my flower. And that's kind of how I looked at it. And uh, but then as I as I would die, and, and the neat thing about it was. I no longer had a job, so I didn't have those stresses, and on that trail, there's times when in my mind, I'm I'm just processing, I'm solving problems, but there's also times for hours when your mind is just almost flat, it's just your your body's moving and your mind is just at rest, relaxed, at rest, and things that seem important weren't a problem, that seemed insurmountable weren't, they're, they're easily solved. And it just after all the stresses were had left behind, everything that I had to live on was on my back. I carried it—food, clothing, shelter—was it on my back, and my mind was clear. And, and as I'm processing things, things that as I grew up in there again, when I like growing up the way I did uh, under pastors that were very dynamic, and uh, and growing up that for for all my life, I've heard uh, preachers saying. You know, Jesus is coming back, the second coming, this, that, and the other. And, um, and they, they'd always be so real about it. I, I used to think that, man, if, before I get home, it's going to be done. And as a young teenager, I'm thinking, I don't want that to happen. saying you know what, you're writing this book and i want there's a message for you to put in this book and i said well that message is not for me that's for preachers and, and that day i felt god saying if you listen and do what i tell you to i'll get the book where i want it to go and you'll go places where pastors won't go and i thought well that's that sort of doesn't not, i couldn't believe that and but when i came home and wrote the book i thought okay um that uh, when the book company that printed it said they want some recommendations on the back of the cover, and I said, no, I'm not going to do it. And in my mind, the reason I didn't was God said, he'll get it where he wants it to go, and I'm sorry. I guess maybe I uh, shouldn't do it, but <clears throat> I'm sorry if I got to the test. But, uh, excuse me, most books, they sell 500 copies, they're considered, that's considered okay. I, I self-published hardcover and sold 8,500 by myself. And then, then Baker Publishing picked up the rights to it, and they've now sold probably close to 200000 And I've got these letters from all across America from people who say they were at a book rack, and they felt God saying, this is the book for you, pick it up. I've got stories about a young man that was going to kill himself, and somebody in a hospital bought a book, went outside and gave it to this young man, I got a email from him. And a couple in Indiana was going to get divorced, and read my book. A guy in New Hampshire, Catholic man, left his faith. My book but I'm back to faith. And I've been to his house twice and did programs at his Catholic church. hitchhiked and, and back back to Israel. I've hiked across Spain. I've kayaked the Mississippi River. And, uh, and it's just uh, back across across America. These are all things I would not have done, could not have done if my wife had been alive. I would prefer that she was here. Paul, what? By the way, that that doesn't just go for all. That goes for pastors. That goes for professors. That goes for teachers. That goes for anybody that you know has a pulpit uh,
0: to speak into people's lives. Yeah, that's that's a wonderful message. Uh, Couple couple questions that I had as I was listening to you talk about that is you've had a lot of adventurers. You've called yourself an adventurer at the beginning. What's your next big adventure? Have you you thought about that? Well, you know what? Uh, I I have a... uh, Recently, I
1: have a girlfriend, so there's potential marriage ahead, so that definitely would be an adventure.
2: (laughs) Uh, (laughs) we're, We're not quite there yet. But as far as a travel adventure, this summer... I had uh, a goal in mind of of pedaling my bicycle around the five Great Lakes and writing a book about water, the life of water and the water of life. So it's about water, and it's about spiritual water. Uh, I'm fascinated by water, and uh, there's the water that's on the earth. Is the water that God made? today, created the earth. There is no more water. There's no more. There's no less. It, it evaporates. It, it moves around. People think that oh, it rains. We've got more water. No, that rain has come back down because condensation. It you know, brought it back down. Uh, out west, they're building cities where there's no water, and they wonder why the, the river level's going down. You know, there's. Uh, um, the, uh, you. you uh, it's just I'm amazed sometimes at how. Uh, People take nature and they, they kind of turn it into their their god. And I still believe God rules nature. I think man is responsible for a lot of things, but I also feel like there, we we shouldn't blame God for storms or earthquakes when we built on earthquake zones, when we built cities where there's storms. That's just sort of my personal opinion on that. And I'm sort of going down a rabbit drill there.
0: No, I. It was funny. We were. I, I was having a discussion at our house a couple of weeks ago about how the federal government should not should not offer flood insurance for people that live on the coast. So uh, because it, it encourages there's incentives for behavior that you're right. It historically being in that location is, is not a good thing. And
2: well, it's not. And it's like, like when you think about like for instance, New Orleans, you're building a city under water
0: level. It right. makes zero sense, right? and then you get a Katrina in,
2: and you're going to blame it on God, you're going to blame it on global warming, you're going to blame it, and it's like, for instance, this last storm that just came through Panama in Mexico Beach, horrible, I mean, you look at that picture, and it's just incredibly horrible, but then I'm thinking, what if that city wasn't there where hurricanes come through, you wouldn't even hear about it, right? you wouldn't blame it on anything, it's just a storm. And so it, it, that's and, – and, and these storms happen since the, since the beginning of mankind. and But we built where we shouldn't build, and it's just uh, – it doesn't always make sense. And that's – I think we got – I think I got on that because I was talking about my, my trip around the Great Lakes. Right. And so deviated there. So I did. I went – I did uh, – my goal was to start at Niagara Falls. My wife loved Niagara Falls. And so I, I started my bike ride at Niagara Falls, and I circled Lake Ontario, and uh, – did that I came back home, and uh, on that hike, I mean on that bike ride, right, I realized how unsafe it is. I mean, I had a mirror, and I'm constantly looking at my mirror to check the car coming behind me to see if it sees me because they're texting and they're on the phone. It's not safe. Right. And in New York, I almost got run over by a lady who ran a stop sign, and I realized that this isn't safe. And so, but I, but I wanted to write that book about uh, spiritual water and real and and the life of water. And just north of us, the Five Great Lakes is, is the second largest body of fresh water in the world. I mean, what a resource, fresh water. And uh, and so I was going to write about, you know, some of the conservation projects. and But then also the Bible is just full of spiritual application of water. But then um, back in uh, August, my, my nine-year-old grandson was bit by a mosquito, and he got encephalitis, and he was in the hospital uh, for two weeks in a coma. And they had literally had to take half his skull off so the brain could expand. And uh, they put, took that skull off and brought him out of the coma, put the skull back on. And he's, he's been in the hospital now for two months. And uh, October the 25th, he's going to be released. And so it's, been a, it's just been hospital trips to Akron uh, Children's Hospitals every day spent many nights in the in the in the uh, uh intensive care unit with, with my son uh by the young man's bedside he, he's absolutely the kid was he, his blood pressure was uh, 50 or 40 20 some heart rate code at one time it's just he's a miracle with there's thousands of people praying for the young man yeah. and uh, so now he's in therapy and uh he's still got a little ways to go but uh so anyway that that kinda, threw off all my projects for the summer and so as far as for in the future I don't have any big projects lined up uh, but uh, I've also uh, I've got some book ideas that, that I want to uh, like to write about uh, there's also uh, there's a couple different uh, entities looking at turning heightened into a movie hmm. and so I've been uh, spending some time the last uh, couple of months meeting with different uh, producers and so uh, that, that's um, that's a project I'm working on right now.
0: Wow, that's that's really neat, and, and prayers for your grandson as well. Well, thank you. Uh, what I wanted to ask you about was, yeah, obviously you, you you found a lot of value in solitude or with with journeying with a couple of people at a time. Uh, can you talk about the town? Talk a little bit about how you felt when, when you would go to a different town and meet different people. Uh, what were you surprised by? What what didn't surprise you about the people that you met?
2: Well, I, I did find out that most people are good. Yet in, in America, it's, it's the bad ones seem to get a lot of press. But most people are still good. I was uh, hadn't worked in a restaurant for years, and I had I had a seven hundred seat restaurant, tourist restaurant. So I was really busy, and I had 100, anywhere from 130 to 150 employees. And so I had the stresses of all those employees and the, and the tourists, and, uh, and I loved my job. But it was just, it was high, high stress. And uh, I was so ready to just get away from people. And so on the trail, um, I did. I'm just, it's just me. And uh, and I actually sound silly, but I get along with myself. There's a lot of people that cannot do what I did. They, they could not go out and walk by themselves. You know woods. they just can't. Right. Uh, they're they're either afraid of they're afraid of what they don't know uh, they're afraid of the dark they're afraid of like I said they're of the unknown and uh, that's why a lot of people I mean, I've talked to hundreds of people who would like to do what I did but so many of them want to know everything they they want to know the end from the beginning. and said well. There's a little parking area there, and I take my backpack off, and, and I was uh, eating a, a snack and a car full over Mom, Dad, and a couple of kids in the back seat, and um, they were asking me if I'm a thru hiker. I said, "Yeah, I'm a thru hiker." And uh, they asked me if I wanted a Pepsi, and I said, "Well, I prefer Coke, but I said I can't take it I'll take your Pepsi." Hmm. Well, a little kid in the back seat had a half eaten croissant. He said, do "You want this thing?" And I said, "I sure do." And I grabbed and ate it. And, but it's just people along the trail. They're, they're, they're willing to give you food. Uh, trail angels, we call, we call them trail angels. They're, they wait at roadsides, and they'll give you rides. They'll give you food. And so um, pretty much everybody I met was good. There is an incident in the book. Uh, a guy named Smith, who back in 1980 had actually killed two hikers on the Appalachian Trail. He was put in prison. And uh, he was let out um, a couple of years before I came through there, but on the 2008, uh, like a day or two before I got to the place where he had killed these two hikers, the same guy came out of the trail and shot a couple of fishermen. They, they survived, but uh, he was caught put in prison. And uh, the day I left Parisburg, he had passed him in his prison cell. And so, you know, you do admit I didn't meet him, but that incident happened. And when that does happen, it seems—it's really—it's frightening, and it's national news. But the reality of it is, in the seventy-some-year history of the Appalachian Trail, there have been—I uh, think six murders. And I think all—I think there've been three doubles. Uh, so you figure every year, there's probably somewhere. I think I've heard there's between one and two million people on the trail. Uh, Hiking day hikes, section hikes. What I did was a through hike. There's 200 of us to do what I did. But uh, there's not many people on the trail. And what you think that, like Chicago, typically has 30 in the weekend, is very, very safe. And I know a lot of times I've talked to a lot of ladies that say, well, is it safe for me to go? And I said, it really, if you look at it that way, yes, it's entirely safe. Uh, but what happens generally if ladies want to go out, uh, you'll, you'll meet people. And you'll meet you'll with somebody. and You'll meet somebody probably the first day that you'll hike with, and so that's very typical, but uh, there's also, especially this year, I've followed a number of people, there's a number of ladies that were out there, that went by themselves, but then they come up, they're not just a group of them, gather, so for people that want to do it, they wonder, is it safe? Well, yes, it's, it's, it's safer than driving, kind of driving down your neighborhood, so, uh, but it's it, if you decide to do a through hike, it is, I'll tell you, it's the hardest thing you'll ever do in your life.
0: Right. Right. It, it, it sounds like a great adventure. Everything you've done just sounds incredibly neat and challenging, and the things you've seen and experienced are, are amazing. Uh, Paul, w- with all the work you've done, the life that you've led, what legacy are you hoping to leave behind?
2: I think about that a lot with my children. You know, I, what? When I, when I pass on, I don't, I don't see me leaving a lot of money. Uh, I'm going to leave some books for the grandkids to read, and they'll read them and say, my granddad did that. <laughs> uh, but if, if they say, you know what, if they say I was an honest man, I did what I said I would do, uh, I, I loved God, and I honored that uh, I was a good dad. If I if they say, you know what, the, I was a good dad, that will make me very happy. Great.
0: How can people learn more about you?
2: Uh, I have a website. It's, it's paulstudsman.com um, and all my books are listed on there, and it'll direct you to Amazon, or Barnes & Noble's, or Christian Booksellers, um, and on that website, I talk more about each book, and so, uh, and even then on on my website, you can direct, you can send me an email through my website, or any of my books, Hike and Biking, uh, the Camino Hike, and Israel. I've also written three Amish books, uh, a set of three Amish, kind of like a kind of a coming of age books uh, about a young Amish boy growing up. It's very authentic Amish. Uh, I, the reason I did that was being raised in the Amish community. There's a lot of Amish books written by authors who really don't know the lifestyle and they write some really bizarre things. Hmm. I mean, you watch shows on TV uh, and they're just so bogus. I mean, just 90% bogus. Uh, I was raised in that environment, and so the books I write—they're called—it's called the Wander series. It's very authentic Old Order Amish upbringing and beliefs, and some of some of the upbringing uh, beliefs uh, you might amaze the readers. And I base my writings from the late '60s, early '70s, when I was a teenager, running around with Amish boys, uh, the tail end of the Vietnam War. So in my writing, it's fiction. But there's also a lot of truth in them. There's a lot of things that have happened in my upbringing. So if you read those books, I I write a lot about hospitals since I worked in a hospital. I write about cafes and restaurants since that's what I did. And so uh, this young boy uh, leaves the Amish faith and and goes to the West Coast and comes back on a bicycle ride. And people say, Well, you did that, it's about you. Well, no, it's not. But it just happens to be that I write about
0: what I know. Terrific. Well, if you can hold the line, Paul, I'm going to sign off here. Thank you for tuning in to the Outstanding Ohioan Show. This was episode 64. Uh, I had the tremendous blessing to talk to Paul Stutzman, adventurer and author. Thank you for tuning into the show, and have a great day.